A three-pound drone that fits inside a backpack today, Wednesday, January 23rd. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, are being used more and more, both overseas and here at home. And not all are used for national security purposes. In fact, drones may soon be doing things we haven't heard about yet. Flying organs from one place to another uh, to get them there faster for transplants. But for some, the boom in drone use raises privacy concerns too. What about the images that the drones capture of people in their private property, in their backyard? And later on the program, what it's like to be an oil and gas worker in a place like Algeria. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today and tomorrow, we're focusing a large part of our program on the topic of drones, unmanned aerial vehicles, as they're known technically. The U.S. military flies them over Afghanistan. The CIA uses them in places like Pakistan and Yemen. Sometimes the drones are just for surveillance, but on many occasions, they are used to bomb targets. And that's often led to unintended civilian casualties. That's made the use of drones very controversial around the world. We begin our coverage, though, here on U.S. soil. Those drones flying over, say, Afghanistan are often piloted by people sitting in rooms in the United States. Those pilots on the ground, if you will, often learn how to operate the drones by flying them in domestic skies. One training program is run out of Hancock Air Base in Syracuse, New York. North Country Public Radio's David Summerstein reports on the fuzzy line between military preparation and creepy eye in the sky. The MQ-9 Reaper is the U.S. military's premier hunter-killer drone. It's ultra-sleek and slate-gray. And I gotta say, standing in a maintenance bay, it looks a little creepy. There are no windows, of course, yet it can see things from 20,000 feet. Pilots fly the Reaper from virtual cockpits inside a white bunker, encircled by several layers of barbed wire. It's so classified, I'm not allowed to look inside or talk with pilots, let alone take a picture. Our bread and butter's uh, mission called uh, close air support. Uh, support the boots on the ground. That's Colonel Greg Semmel, commander of the Air National Guard's 174th Attack Wing. He says most of the Reaper training takes place in the airspace above Fort Drum Army Base, an hour north of here. Pilots practice supporting ground troops with bombing runs. Occasionally, they even drop real missiles onto Fort Drum's ranges. But the Reapers also soar far beyond the base, Semmel says, over Lake Ontario, across northern New York State, over the Adirondack Mountains, where real people live, not just soldiers in training. Let's say um, we're going to go out and we're going to simulate uh, watching a, uh, some structure out there, a bridge over a river up in the Adirondacks. Semmel says they'll practice watching that bridge for hours. He says pilots will also practice tailing cars driven by hired contractors. They'll see civilian cars, too, maybe even people. But Semmel says they won't identify anyone or anything. We're going to see lots of cars go across that bridge. But I can tell you we don't have the capability to get detail on that car. We can't read the license plate. 
We can't read, we can't tell who that is, where they're going, what they're doing. The Reaper has been used to track and attack alleged insurgents or terrorists with great detail in places like Pakistan and Yemen. I asked the Reaper's manufacturer, General Atomics, if its camera could, say, identify a person. The company referred me to the Pentagon. An Air Force spokesman wouldn't get specific. When the Reaper's training was launched two years ago, Colonel Chuck Dorsey of the 174th Attack Wing described a more targeted training program for state regulators. He spoke to the Adirondack Park Agency in January 2011. We picked the third house on the right past the, the big blue silo, and we start working there. Or, or one thing that's particularly uh, difficult training and very useful training is to pick the next car that drives north across the Black River out of uh, Casterland and track that track that vehicle as it makes turns and it goes underneath trees and behind barns and whatnot and, 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 and see where that thing ends up. It's this hidden eye in the sky that worries privacy advocates most about drones. What about the images that the drones capture of people in their private property, in their backyard? Udi Ofer of the American Civil Liberties Union says the Reaper training over upstate New York is just one example of domestic drone usage. Police used a drone in North Dakota last year to arrest a man in a cattle wrestling case. Drones now regularly patrol the borders with Mexico and Canada. But Ofer says legal protections haven't kept up. And that's why we need a privacy act for the 21st century to address the fact that drones are getting cheaper, they're getting smaller, and they're getting more powerful, yet there are no meaningful rules in place to regulate them. Colonel Semmel of the 174th Attack Wing says the military has very strict rules for its training program, including destroying practice surveillance video in 30 to 60 days. But there are thorny questions. What if a pilot witnesses a crime, like a holdup or a car accident? Semmel says they wouldn't contact law enforcement unless it was a matter of public safety, like a house on fire. But it's unclear whether the training video could be subpoenaed by a court of law. Still, there's been little public objection to the Reaper training flights. Upstate New York has been a military flyover hotspot for decades. F-16s from the old airbase in Plattsburgh used to startle hikers climbing the peaks of the Adirondacks. It was, it was jets, and they were low. I mean, frequent. Peter Crowley was one of those hikers as a kid. Now he's managing editor of the Adirondack Daily Enterprise newspaper. He says drones are not loud like jets. They're not a nuisance issue, but rather a privacy one. But when the paper wrote twice about the drone training flights, Crowley says his readers barely batted an eye. I was a bit surprised, to be honest, because sometimes people have concerns about privacy, and I haven't heard them. Experts say everyone from FedEx to farmers to paparazzi is looking into unmanned aircraft to help do their work. Colonel Semmel at the Reaper training program says that's inevitable. The opportunities are endless, so I think it's very important uh, for us uh, as a nation to figure out how to integrate these things into the national airspace. The Federal Aviation Administration predicts thousands of drones could be flying over U.S. airspace by the end of the decade. The debate over where and how is only just beginning. For The World, I'm David Summerstein in Syracuse, New York. So what will those thousands of drones flying over the U.S. be doing exactly? The World's Jason Margolis has more on that. The University of North Dakota recently began offering an undergraduate major in unmanned aircraft systems operations. Right now, most graduates wound up in jobs that support the military. But program head Ben Trapnell says civilian uses will eventually far outpace those for defense. 
Some of the big things, agricultural uses, uh, we can get imagery to farmers a lot faster than having to wait for satellites to do the same thing. For instance, an unmanned plane could fly over a field and send back pictures to show where pests are located. Or a farmer could spread insecticide with an unmanned airplane. Trapnell says there are also medical applications. There's the possibility of flying organs from one place to another uh, to get them there faster for transplants. Unmanned aircraft could monitor oil pipelines using infrared cameras that look for the heat signatures from oil leaks. Today, when we hear about unmanned aircraft, we're accustomed to imagining a big military drone, basically a plane without a pilot. These fighter drones have to be big to carry missiles. But unmanned aircraft for civilian purposes can be built much smaller. That little black box you're seeing there is the uh, device we we made for the uh, Office of Naval Research. Jeff Johnson gives me a tour of the labs at Aperio, a company that makes avionics equipment in Fargo, North Dakota. He's pointing out a device that detects obstacles and keeps an unmanned aircraft from crashing into a building or other planes. The device is a cube small enough to hold in the palm of your hand. As small as that is, it's too big. (laughs) The cube needs to be smaller because unmanned planes of the future will be really, really small picture a model airplane. Johnson calls these flying machines UAVs, short for unmanned aerial vehicles. He says making one small enough to be portable could be helpful, for instance, in fighting a forest fire. And one of the applications we've been asked about is to have uh, a person being able to carry a UAV on their back that they assemble and can send through a smoke plume to see what's on the other side. These devices may be small, but they still need oversight when they're in the air. In the U.S., the Federal Aviation Administration is in charge of that, and it's proceeding cautiously. For now, the FAA has banned most uses of UAVs while it figures out the risks these devices pose and draws up regulations. In the meantime, the agency has authorized UAVs for important missions deemed, quote, in the public interest. That includes things like disaster relief and law enforcement. Still, operations are prohibited over densely populated areas. To the north, Canada is moving ahead more quickly. You can get a permit to fly a UAV in a matter of weeks, but even with that, you can't fly it higher than 400 feet. Once certified, pilots can purchase a UAV from a company like Arion Labs in Waterloo, Ontario. The company's Ian McDonald says his firm sells a device called the Scout. The system comes out of a small case or backpack about the size of carry-on luggage, so the system can be deployed anywhere and carried by a single user. The Scout is like a helicopter, but uses four propellers to stay airborne. While in the sky, cameras take video or photos. McDonald says in the past three years, his company has sold the Scout to military and commercial customers on every continent except Antarctica. A customer in South Korea used the system as part of security planning and response for the 2012 nuclear summit. That summit attracted more than 50 world leaders, including President Obama. McDonald says there are a few key reasons to use the Scout. Namely, it's cheaper and safer than hiring a pilot to fly a plane or helicopter. And it flies lower to capture higher-resolution images. Add it all up, it's big business. Already, worldwide sales for unmanned aerial vehicles top $7 billion, according to industry estimates. And that figure could more than double within a decade, especially as UAVs start to get used for more civil applications. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. 
You can watch drones in action this evening on PBS. Sit inside a military command center during a test drone strike. Visit a lab that's developing tiny robots that fly in swarms. It's a brave new world, and Nova explores it all. That's Rise of the Drones on our partner program, Nova, tonight. Nigerian-American writer Teju Cole has also been thinking about drones. Very brief thoughts. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Pity. A signature strike leveled the florists. That's one of a series of tweets Cole's written about drones. You might recognize something familiar about it. Here, listen to another. Call me Ishmael. I was a young man of military age. I was immolated at my wedding. My parents are inconsolable. Yes, that's Herman Melville's character, Ishmael, but the predator is not the great white whale Moby Dick. It's a drone. That first tweet we heard featured Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Tomorrow, we'll hear Cole explain his use of characters from literature to put a human, albeit fictional, face to news reports about civilian casualties caused by drone strikes. I started thinking about something uh, which, in my mind, I called the empathy gap between what was happening militarily uh, with global war and terror and the attitude, or in fact, lack of attitude, that many people had towards what was going on. You can hear more of my conversation with Teju Cole right here tomorrow. In the meantime, you can listen to Cole reading some of his tweets at theworld.org. Later in the program, we'll examine the legacy of Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. This observer says it's a positive legacy, but not without setbacks for Clinton. You know, I think that she was sort of squeezed out by the White House in dealing with you know, what, you know, I hate saying this, but it, but it's true that you had generals and sort of a male-dominated network of people that were dealing with Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and what were considered to be the big national security issues. And she wasn't given much latitude and bandwidth to affect those areas. Looking back on Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State coming up in a few minutes here on The World, this is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The horrific gang rape and murder of a young woman in India's capital last month has generated outrage and a lot of talk, talk about how dangerous it is for women in India and New Delhi in particular. Today, a commission released a set of recommendations for protecting women from violence. Many women say they routinely face harassment and worse on public transportation. Those who can afford it have their own cars, sometimes with chauffeurs. Others move around in the company of family and friends. But there's another option, at least for a few women in the city. As the world's Ritu Chatterjee reports, it started off as an experiment. It's called Cabs for Women by Women. And it's a small service, just seven cabs with eight female drivers. They only pick up women. I get a ride with 31-year-old Shanti Sharma. She says the popularity of their service has spiked since the gang rape in December. After this case, our workload has increased so much. Women who used other cab services before are turning to us now. Women who are relatively well-off, middle-class ones, especially those who travel alone a lot. And some, like me, who are new to the city or just visiting. Sharma tells me that one customer recently told her that even if it's more expensive than most cab services and you have to call ahead and book it, it's worth it, especially after last month's attack. 
Sharma says she's happy to be providing the service. When I'm on the road driving our cab, I feel very proud because this is a cab service for women and I'm a woman. A work is supporting the women of Delhi. We make them feel safe. But safety for women is just one goal. Nayantara Janardhan is with Sakha Consulting Wing, the non-profit that runs the cab service. She says the project was a joint effort with another group, Azad Foundation, which helps urban women from poor and marginalized communities. Azad Foundation wanted to provide non-gender stereotypical livelihood option to be able to allow these women to earn at par with the men. They wanted to put women in charge of technology. They wanted to open up boundaries for women. And they wanted to ensure that women end up as well-rounded professionals and people who are aware of what they are entitled to. The cab service is only a small part of their operations. We have almost 50 women now who are working with uh, many uh, families, with individual women, with women with children. That is, these women work as private chauffeurs. Shanti Sharma started out as a chauffeur for a 50-year-old blind woman. But she says she enjoys the independence of driving a cab. She's a single parent with three daughters, and she says for the first time in her life, she's earning enough to support her family. Ever since I started doing this job, I feel like I've reached my destination. I don't want to change jobs anymore. But Sharma says the job is a lonely one because she and other female taxi drivers are completely outnumbered by male cabbies. When I park somewhere, there's always men there and inevitably five or six of them get together and hang out. I'm usually the only woman in the parking lot, so I just stay inside in the car. Sometimes I wish there were more women drivers to hang out with. It's not much better when she's out on the road. She says the male drivers give her a hard time. As soon as they see a girl at the wheel, they start honking for no reason. They'll try to overtake you. I always worry about how to avoid getting hit by someone. Soon, I get to witness what she means. At one point, as she prepares to make a U-turn, a few cars back up behind us. The driver of a government jeep right behind us starts honking persistently. It seems like the other drivers are staring at us. A woman driving a woman. Sharma looks a little tense, but she laughs and shrugs it off. How can I turn if there are so many cars whizzing by in front of me? Tell me. I don't know what to say. The only way to change the attitude of the men, she says, is to have more women driving. And perhaps, I think to myself, more women demanding to be safe on the road and wherever they are heading. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, New Delhi. New Delhi has other kinds of transport, for instance, auto rickshaws. 55,000 of these three-wheelers cruise the city's crowded streets, and Sunita Chaudhry is one of the city's only female auto rickshaw drivers. Her conservative family didn't approve of women working outside the home, so she left her hometown more than a decade ago and went to New Delhi. She eventually saved up enough money to buy her own wheels, though she still hasn't told her family about it. It's a risky job. She says she's even been harassed by the police. The world's Sonia Narang filmed a day in Sunita's life. You can see her video at theworld.org. 
Now, one more brief story about a cab ride. This one involves the longstanding tensions and violence between India and Pakistan, but this ride took place in the United States. Writer Deepak Singh recently took a short taxi trip from his hotel in Philadelphia to the train station, and he got way more than he bargained for. Here's his essay. I checked out of my hotel in Philadelphia and wheeled my suitcase through the automatic doors. Several taxis were lined up at the curb. I gestured at a driver to pop the trunk for me. I stashed my suitcase and hopped in next to him, hoping for some conversation. I asked him, are you from India? He looked at me and said, Pakistan. Are you from India? I said, yes. He didn't respond. So I tried again. How are things in Pakistan? Not good, he said, looking ahead. He didn't appear to be in a mood to talk. But a minute later, when I was looking out the window, he said, your country is responsible for all the problems in Pakistan. I looked at him, surprised, but I didn't say anything. Innocent children and women are dying daily, he continued. Every other day there is a terrorist attack. It's become impossible to live there. Can you ask your country to stop the killings, he said, turning to me with teary eyes. I've lost so many of my relatives. I wasn't prepared for my 15-minute taxi ride to be so intense. Can you help us, he asked again. I swallowed and nodded unconvincingly. For the next 10 minutes, we sat next to each other without saying a word. I watched tears roll down his cheeks, dropping on the steering wheel. I felt helpless and uncomfortable. Finally, we arrived at the station and he stopped the car. I pulled out a $20 bill to pay him, thinking I'd tell him to keep the change. I handed him the money. He took the bill, folded it and shoved it back into my shirt pocket. Do something, he said. We need your country's help. I stood there and watched him get into his car and drive away. That was writer and producer Deepak Singh talking about an intense cab ride he took in Philadelphia. He divides his time between the United States and India. Time enough for a quick note before the break. A few months back, we told you the tale of a statue in Mexico. It's of a former leader of Azerbaijan, Haidar Aliyev, and it's in a park in the Mexican capital. Not as crazy as it sounds. Oil-rich Azerbaijan has paid for a lot of public improvements in Mexico City, and the statue was originally intended as a testament to the will of the two peoples to grow closer. But human rights advocates there have complained about the statue, pointing to the repressive nature of Aliyev's rule. Well, Mexico City's mayor now says the controversial statue is going to be moved. That may please human rights advocates, but Azerbaijan is not happy. It's threatening to cut investments in Mexico. News headlines from the BBC World Service are coming up in one minute. You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton goes to Capitol Hill to defend her record on Benghazi. We'll examine her legacy after four years as America's top diplomat. I don't think she's a warm and fuzzy person. I think she's a very effective diplomat who finds her way in there. And later, what it's like to work in the oil and gas business overseas. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. She will be stepping down soon as Secretary of State, but today Hillary Clinton was still on the job, fielding sometimes heated questions from lawmakers on Capitol Hill, questions about what happened in Benghazi, Libya. You'll recall the attack there last September 11th, which left four Americans dead, including U.S. Ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens. And you'll recall the controversy over how U.S. officials initially characterized the attack as coming after a street protest. Here's one tense exchange today between Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson and Secretary Clinton. We have no doubt they were terrorists, they were militants, they attacked us, they killed our people. But what was going on and why they were doing what they were doing? No, 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 no. Again, again, we no. were misled that there was supposedly protests and then something sprang out of that, an assault sprang out of that. And that was easily obta- ascertained I, that that was not the fact. But, but, and the American know, people could have known that within days, and, and they, they didn't know that. With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was it I because understand. of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again, Senator. Steve Clemens, the editor-at-large of the Atlantic Monthly, has watched Secretary Clinton's testimony carefully. He says she weathered the barrage of criticism well. Her downside risk today was not taking responsibility, and I think that she did a rather good job of protecting her legacy as a pragmatic doer. And so when she, you think about the legacy and you always hear about the number of miles she flew and the uh, number of countries she visited, I think that while that, that this is not really a smirch, I think, you know, if you really lead, read beneath the lines and, you know, we're going to be reading this testimony and the exchanges for quite a while, there's something that, that she was implying without saying it directly and say, listen, diplomats matter. And what's going on with insurgents around the world matters. And you guys have been under-resourcing us in the diplomatic bureaus. And that if we want to both protect our people out there, but we also want to be engaged, it's going to require more resources than we've been receiving. I think that solidifies her position as someone who is really believes in global engagement, but doesn't look at it as, 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 as a soft sport. It's hard-edged, and there are real dangers out there. Yeah, it's a fair repost on the secretary's part, but there are still these questions uh, lingering about these four dead Americans. How long will those be dogging her? It will always be a part of her legacy that this was a sad and tragic incident. Hillary is going to have this mark on her record, but I don't think it's necessarily an automatic negative. The the, the negative of this, the tragedy of this is shared uh, among those who didn't fund uh, security appropriately. You know, we didn't hear much about the CIA today. I found that really weird, uh, frankly. Um, And, you know, not until well into the discussion that we hear about the CIA outpost, what they were doing, and, and the different operational lines of authority there. So I think that there's a shared responsibility, but she accepted all the blame herself just to take it. And I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm sometimes critical of Hillary Clinton, but today I'm not. Now, when she spoke before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Secretary Clinton made the point of how much she's been on the road for her job as Secretary of State, the 120 countries or so that she's visited. But in terms of foreign policy, what is all that amounted to, especially in terms of her legacy? Well, two things. One, I think that Hillary Clinton has done more than people give her credit for, 
for showing how non-traditional areas of national security, such as poverty, development, disease, women's rights, et cetera, are fundamentally national security issues. And that American engagement in the world doesn't just mean engagement with nations with nuclear weapons or nations that are troublemakers or nations that are just automatically powerful. And so she has been, uh, if you can imagine a kind of underclass of nations in the world, she's been dedicated to reaching out to those. And I think uh, in the long run, that redounds back to the United States very effectively. My worry is, and, and I admire Senator Kerry, but how much of that will be consolidated and carried on, uh, I'm not sure. So while I find her approach refreshing and different, part of a legacy is making sure that it carries on after. It can't just be a function of the individual. And on that front, I'm fairly critical of Hillary. Was there a moment for you in the past four years that was particularly revealing or really kind of crystallized who uh, Secretary Clinton was, is as a diplomat? I don't think she's a warm and fuzzy person. I think she's a very effective diplomat who finds her way in there. And in a way, you know, I think that she was sort of squeezed out by the White House. You know, I hate saying this, but it, but it's true that you had generals and sort of a male-dominated network of people that were dealing with Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and what were considered to be the big national security issues. And she wasn't given much latitude and bandwidth to affect those areas. Mm-hmm. She jumped into digital diplomacy. She she is the queen and diva of digital diplomacy in the world. And she's done more to basically promote and think about the impact uh, that can come from the liberalization of digital inclusion and how that can be uh, positive for us. And so I think that she found her way forward and by visiting all these countries that weren't necessarily torn apart by civil war, demonstrated that she, and, and, and look how popular she is. So in, in a sense, I think that she showed up many people in the White House with how effective she could be in creating her own platforms uh, for moving America's diplomatic interests forward. That that really has impressed me greatly. Steve Clemens, editor-at-large of The Atlantic Monthly. Thanks indeed. My pleasure. The attack on a remote natural gas facility in Algeria and the deadly hostage crisis that followed focused new attention on oil and gas production in Africa. There are a lot of untapped resources there, and that's drawing energy workers from around the globe. The world's Alex Galifant spoke with two men, an American and a Canadian, who are currently earning a living in Ghana and Algeria. Al is an oil company man from Edmonton, Canada. He'd rather not share his last name. He's 54 years old, and he's been in the business for more than three decades. He started out stripping paint and filling sandbags. Now he's the company rep at remote well sites. Right now, he's working at an oil well site in Algeria, about 300 miles from where the attack happened last week. You know, like I'm in the middle of the desert. The only thing I got around me is sand dunes and uh, and nationals and Chinese. So it's... Uh, you're out there. Yeah, yeah, you're you're out there, yeah. By nationals, Al means local workers, Algerians. And I have a Chinese rig, so I got Chinese rig personnel with um, Algerian laborers. He's on what they call a 28-28. 28 days at work, whether it's day or night or around the clock, and then 28 days at home in Canada with his two kids and his wife, Janet. She heard about the attack on the Algerian gas facility from the news. And even though it happened in a different part of the country, well, it made them both stop and think. You know, this really plays uh, with me, and I know it's playing with my wife and, and the kids. Uh, they see the bad side of it, so they, uh, you know, they're kind of pushing me. They want me to come home. Well, I've been four weeks on, four weeks off, five and five. 
This is Mark Houston, an American currently working in Takaradi, a port in southwest Ghana. It's that country's oil hub. He does well tests, evaluating the flow of a well, figuring out the quantity of gas and oil it's producing. Houston's 51. Before going to Ghana, he worked in Siberia, on rigs in the North Sea, and all over Africa, including Algeria. I've been uh, Angola, Congo, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, Togo, Ivory Coast. So far, nothing he's experienced security-wise has put him off working on the continent. The only close incident we had was Equatorial Guinea in 2004 when there was a coup attempt. Houston remembers his camp being put on lockdown. So we had to just send drivers to go get our food and stuff, but I didn't feel uneasy for it. I didn't feel unsafe or anything like that. If you pay attention to what you're doing, you don't have any issues. I mean, there's places in downtown Dallas I won't go after dark unless you're looking for trouble. And that's the same thing I found all the places in Africa. The only place Houston says he won't go is Nigeria. Too dangerous. I know some guys who worked there for years and they enjoy it. But they enjoy a lot of the other benefits that are there, and I'm not interested in that because I did that years ago, so I don't need that no more. What are you talking but, about? Uh, women, cheap and available. Houston married his wife, Madonna, two years ago. She's in the oil business too, driving trucks across the length and breadth of America. Wherever equipment needs to be hauled, she's hauled it. Their home is in Dallas, as he mentioned, but in Ghana, Mark Houston lives in what they call a staff house, a 30-room hotel that the oil company has taken over entirely. we got a nice lounge where you can socialize and good food they cook for us, so it's not bad. Been worse, been better. By contrast, Al from Edmonton is living in a container in the Algerian desert. It's part of a portable campsite that's home to about 130 people. It's, uh, it's not a bad little camp. Al says they're getting more security in the wake of last week's attack. And even though that attack gave him pause, he's just signed another one-year contract. That'll make it eight years in Algeria. With what happened, I'm not going to let that uh, stop me from doing what I really enjoy doing. And he makes a good living out there. That's what we say. It's all about the Benjamins. No, the money's good. I make, I make decent money. And I've been able to buy things and pay cash for them, from sports cars to motorcycles to paid my house off 10 years ahead of schedule and things like that. So the financial rewards are there, and it's let you work for it. Now Mark Houston's looking ahead to new opportunities in East Africa and possibly Iraq. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. The artistic director of Moscow's famous Bolshoi Ballet underwent eye surgery today. Sergei Filin was viciously attacked with acid last week. Doctors are battling to save his sight. The attack has prompted a wave of questions about the Bolshoi with some talk of a toxic atmosphere. Anna Nemtsova is a correspondent for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. She's based in Moscow. Uh, first of all, how is Sergei Filin doing? Will he ever be able to return to work? He's absolutely sure that he's going to return to work pretty soon. And uh, actually, he continues working from the hospital. Uh, his troop keep telling him that he should not worry, that they will dance even better to make him happy. Now, he was attacked by a man late at night as he returned home from a performance last week. What's the latest on the investigation into who might have done this? There are several versions the investigators are looking into. The, the, there is one version that... Somebody um, might have been angry with him for for not giving a part in a ballet. And, uh, of course, uh, big money is involved. 
So it could be a competition. Um, I also heard of, of another version, which investigators also are serious about, pronounced by Alexei Ratmansky, the former Bolshoi's artistic director. Uh, Ratmansky says that there's allegedly a group of fans, of uh, half-crazy fans who surround the troupe and they're involved in, in intrigues and some ugly, ugly stories. When, when you say kind of crazed fans, you mean like stalkers? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's Dodmansky's version. He says that he's not surprised that um, the tragedy took place because intrigues and, you know, sick situations were growing like a snowball, he said. Sick so, situations, you say? He said that Bolshoi is full of ills, of diseases, you know, okay. that people argue all the time. And I actually reported several waves of this conflict uh, every time they would involve some very famous figure, including... Well, Radmansky himself, actually. Well, as you say, I mean, these ills, these controversies, the Bolshoi Ballet is no stranger to them. Remind us of some of the other things that have been going on in the last couple of years. You might remember the story about Anastasia Volochkova. Foreign press called her the fattest ballerina, or Russia's fattest ballerina. But actually, she claims she was the victim of uh, Bolshoi's management, who were involved in big scams, corruption deals. And... Uh, that's from her words, right? Mm -hmm. I, I talked to Anastasia a lot, and she said that to get rid of her, she would not agree to certain deals uh, that involved money. She didn't want to to be involved in any corruption. And um, in my last interview with her, she actually said that her partners were threatened with with knives when they approached their, their, their houses. And she received threats on the phone just uh, the way Sergei Filin had received this uh, threats a few months ago. Has he said anything to the press about who he thinks is behind this attack? Yes, he, he has no doubt that the attack was ordered by somebody uh, from the theater. What's happening to ballet in Russia? I mean, would, would these stories, uh, the, this horrible attack with acid and all the mix-up and the toxic atmosphere, would this have ever happened in communist Soviet Union? I mean, has ballet just lost its once seeming revered status in Russia? Well, you know, of course, in Soviet Union, we never heard of billions of dollars uh, at the ballet theaters. Right. Uh, theaters were actually poor. They were on state budget and ballerinas never had big, big incomes. Um, I actually went myself to ballet school. And when I was 12, they selected four girls to go to St. Petersburg, Vaganova School. And my father said, wait, just listen to me. If you go and you become probably not the prima ballerina, but somebody in the crowd, uh, other girls would probably want you to break your leg. And in Russian, this is not just an expression. This is a serious thing. <laughs> right. That, people want you to, to break, your leg. break your leg. They yeah. mean it. Yeah. So, you know, I heard my, my father's message and uh, I never became a professional ballerina. Um, as we know, Sergei Filin also spoke out his mind. You know, he, he always expresses himself um, openly and he says what he thinks. And pro probably there were more conflicts uh, between him and the management than we know about. Anna Nyemtsova, a correspondent for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Every day in our newsroom, there's a story that captures our attention. They're not necessarily important stories, and we don't always get to tell you about them. But today we do. 
This one comes from Sydney, Australia, and it's about a goat named Gary. He's a handsome fellow. You can see a photo of him at theworld.org. Gary the goat recently got busted, and police slapped a fine on Gary's owner, Jim DeZarno, because his goat was eating flowers outside a museum. The charge? Vandalism, destroying vegetation. Well, Jim and Gary went to court to contest the $440 fine. The police argued that Jim had acted recklessly in letting Gary even approach the flower bed. But the magistrate said there was no evidence that Gary's owner brought him there with the intention of vandalizing the flowers. And today, the Australian court dropped charges against Gary the goat. Speaking outside the courthouse, Jim said Gary had taught the police a lesson. Gary's name has been cleared of all this slander. He was simply eating. And um, I just want to um, thank everyone for coming down here. And I want to thank McGurr Lawyers for helping me out. I just met these guys walking Gary a couple of weeks ago, and we got off. And I just think... Um, Gary the goats taught the cops a valuable lesson today, and that's don't bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> mm, Gary's a goat is a comedian. No, really, that is Jim DeZarno's day job. But the best joke about the story, it's got to go to our news editor, Chris Wolf, who came up with the headline, Aw, kids these days. Quick calculations are in order for today's GeoQuiz. First, everyone knows where New York City is, right? Good. Now what about Granada? That's Granada, Spain, not the island of Grenada in the Caribbean. The city of Granada in southern Spain is famous for its Moorish citadel, the Alhambra, for its Mediterranean climate, and especially for its flamenco music. We'll hear some in just a few seconds. But the question right now is, how far is it from Granada to New York City? It's a similar distance to the one Columbus traveled across the Atlantic to the New World, took him more than two months by boat, including a stopover in the Canary Islands. Nowadays, it's about a seven or eight hour flight from Spain to New York. But we're looking for the distance in miles, which is roughly 15% of the Earth's circumference. And you gotta think fast. All right, here's the answer. It's about 3,700 miles from Granada to New York. Now, here's reporter Beto Arcos to tell us about a singer from Granada who now makes her home in New York. Lara Bello grew up surrounded by flamenco music and dance. Granada is one of the cradles of this emblematic Spanish tradition. As a teenager, Bello studied voice and violin at a conservatory. But before that, she learned how to sing and dance flamenco. I started as musicians. I was a dancer. I love very much to connect the sounds with the movements of the body. So I've trained flamenco and contemporary dance and Arabic dance because the Arabic culture there is very strong. Bello's new album is called Primero Amarillo, Después Malva, First Yellow, Then Purple. She says the title refers to the changing colors of springtime in Granada. The beginning of the springtime, the flowers are yellow, and with the time, that flowers, they died, and in their place appears the, the purple ones. So... That's why I, I dedicated that title 
to the cycles of life. Bello says she used to see these colors on the road from her house to her flamenco teacher's studio. Bello's flamenco dance teacher was an American woman nicknamed La Presi. She moved from San Antonio, Texas to Granada some 30 years ago to learn flamenco. And that means that she came into a very, very strong community, very closed. It's not easy even for people that, uh, that we are from Granada, which is a city that we all know a little bit about flamenco, even people that they don't play or they are not musicians or dancers, they know about flamenco. And it's difficult for us. So imagine for somebody that is from the other side of the ocean. La Presi became a well-respected figure in the flamenco world. She died in 2011. But Lara Bello says she continues to be an important influence in her career. In fact, she dedicated her album, to La Presi. So for all of us, all the students, she gave us a lot of power. And also she taught us that your house, home, is where the heart is. It's not a question about where were you born or where you belong or where is the city that is written in your passport is where your heart is. Lara Bello moved to New York two and a half years ago, and she found a new home in a diverse community of musicians from Latin America. living in Spain, I didn't know anything about Peruvian rhythms. I started to work with them. I met great, not only musicians, composers like Samuel Torres. And with this already two years living in the city, I wanted to put these strong roots into my music. So that's how this CD has a little bit of Rhythms from Latin America and colors from Latin America, but from New York also. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. see videos of the talented Larabeo and her flamenco mentor Labresi at theworld.org. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI, Public Radio International.